I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today we have with us Virginia Campbell, who is an ancient Roman historian, archaeologist and author. She's published books like The Tombs of Pompeii, Organization, Space and Society and Pocket Museum's Ancient Rome. She's currently working on prostitution in the Roman world, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's talk about prostitution. So can you define for us um, what is a prostitute in the Roman world? Okay, this is actually really, really difficult and something that um, people who work on prostitution kind of struggle with. So we obviously have some um, later Roman legal texts um, from people like Ulpian who com- who were put together in the digest of Justinian um, who talk about someone um, basically any woman who kind of makes a living openly so this doesn't necessarily just mean someone who's selling sex but he also includes people like women who work in a tavern in some sort of common practice um, or something else like this. Now, this does not obviously mean that all women who work in taverns are prostitutes, but there's this kind of association between the two. Um, So basically, the way we can kind of interpret that is that women in public spaces are a threat to gender norms and sex norms and not being at home, doing the things that like good Roman women are supposed to do, like raising children and weaving um so there's this kind of idea that if there's a woman who is earning money she can be labeled as a prostitute um some of this is really tied up in our ideas of the shame culture that the romans had um some of it's very tied up in that kind of patriarchal aspect of if you're not tied to a man in some way and doing your own thing as a woman therefore you are immoral you are bucking what the expectation of society is and therefore you are um, a loose woman in some regard. I would say more generally from from an ancient historian perspective, we would look for someone who is making their primary income, not all of their income, but their primary income from sex work. And this doesn't mean necessarily like the barmaid who might occasionally do it but the person who is like a full-time prostitute does that make sense yeah so it's actually really quite a difficult sort of thing to think about because 
the Roman legal definition is far, far more encompassing than who we would naturally call a prostitute from a modern context. Um, and it's something that you see quite a lot in the ancient literature is that you have women who are sort of more politically or economically prominent who are accused of being prostitutes, even though it has, I mean, there's been nothing about their sexual behavior that indicates that they're sleeping around in any way, but because they're kind of challenging their expected role as a woman and being more open is the term that's usually used. That um, The Latin is pallum, that they're in public threat spaces that they're more visible in a way and all of those things um, or more independent from the men in their family in a way they're rejecting the family life and therefore they're prostitutes. Um, the Latin term that's used over and over is meritrix. Um, but that has absolutely nothing necessarily to do with sexual activity. So it was a really, really difficult thing to kind of tease out, particularly when you look at the ancient literature of who is being called a prostitute because they're having sex for money versus who is being called a prostitute because they're challenging men in some way. Challenging men. I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> okay. So where did prostitutes come from? Because I, in my mind, you know, can just see, you know, the boatloads of slaves coming in at the dock and then women being pulled out and said yes well she's good enough to be a prostitute you're not wrong oh. um i mean there is evidence to suggest and not this is, this is gonna sound terrible but not just from a um you know who's a roman citizen versus not kind of standpoint but from an economic standpoint prostitutes are more financially beneficial if they're slaves okay um so largely they do seem to be slaves so that means i mean in the roman world obviously that means it could be somebody of any ba any ethnic origin i mean they could be from you know and depending on chronology in your time period they could be greeks they could be gauls they could be from egypt they could be british they could be um i mean it's totally inaccurate for a time period but you know we we have um if you think about the, the film, Kirk Douglas's film, Spartacus, you know, the woman he falls in love with as a slave is a British woman. And I'm not suggesting she's necessarily, you know, classed as a prostitute, but, but that idea that slaves would be available to use for sex is something that really dominates. And within a household, like, so within an elite household, you wouldn't necessarily be classed as a prostitute, but your female and you know your male and particularly younger male i don't want to say children but you know teenage type boys um would be seen as being available for the head of the household to use for sex as he wanted to now he's not paying them because they're his own slaves but within a context of a brothel or something else like that um yeah they're probably slaves they're not necessarily slaves but as far as we can tell there's definitely um an aspect of that, I mean, there could be people of different kind of socioeconomic status who are freeborn Roman citizens who become prostitutes or work at, as prostitutes at some point in time simply for the financial benefit or because they have no other option. I mean, that aspect of sex work certainly has not changed in 2000 years. 
Um, at the same time, you get stories like Juvenal tells us this whole story about um, the Empress Messalina going to work in a brothel every single night because she just basically can't get enough sex. And even after a night of being used by like the masses of common men, she still wants more. Um, and there's actually this really great story under the Emperor Tiberius when there's, we've got all this kind of adultery legislation that's still kicking around that Augustus had enforced where there's an upper class woman um, named Vestilia who is set to be prosecuted for adultery. And she actually tries to register as a prostitute so that she doesn't face trial. Yeah, so at that point, Tiberius institutes a new law that forbids women of senatorial class from becoming a prostitute because he's absolutely actually afraid that more women are going to use this by like registering as a prostitute. Therefore, they can get away with adultery. Um, So, I mean, that gives us some indication that, you know, it could have been anybody and everybody. And like I said, particularly if you think about this definition of um, women, not necessarily... And I mean, it could be men as well. We do have some evidence of that. Um, but if you think that it's it's not necessarily people who are always prostitutes all the time, that it can, there's a fluidity to it, that it could be the person working in the bar or the tavern or the inn or whatever, or someone who's just really down on their luck, um, that means it really doesn't necessarily have to be slaves. It could be people of, of all different backgrounds. You mentioned earlier about the whole Spartacus thing where um, the slaves were used for sex. And all that went through my mind, because I've been watching, um, you know, the new series of Spartacus. Well, not I've, new. Heard, I've not seen it, but I know it exists. <laughs> uh, don't watch it because it might horrify you. But um, as, a, as, a, as a non-ancient historian, I'm free to, do, to, to watch these things without judgment. Um, but all I could see is, you know, that's, that is exactly what they did in there. You know, the guys would use their slaves as just sex objects, obviously doing other things, but also as sex objects. Yeah. So it's quite interesting. Yeah. And that also, I mean, um, that's one of the things that, not to jump ahead with, you know, things we were talking about discussing, but I mean, that's also one of the things that might play into kind of like who is using the brothel. Okay. Well, we're, we are going to talk about it in a moment. So yeah. before we do get to that, so what did they actually do, these prostitutes? Because it wasn't just all about sex, was it? No. And I think this is the same thing that we have to, again, make comparisons to sort of modern ideas we might have about, say, the escort market or, you know, even in early modern European history where we talk about people having courtesans, Um there is a range of activity that is everything from the lowly streetwalker up to, you know, high class kind of professional girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, and this is fairly kind of more really new, new researches is um, in Sarah Levin Richardson's book that's just come out in the last year on, um, the brothel in Pompeii specifically, she goes back and looks at all the original like excavation reports and all the evidence of stuff that's there. And what we have there are actually things like drinking cups, um, razors, 
there's some other evidence of, of eating. So there's actually evidence within the brothel, which is not a residential brothel. People did not live on the ground floor, but there is evidence there of drinking wine, of eating, possibly various aspects of like grooming and bodily care, like shaving. So, so she actually talks about there being a real potential for there to be something beyond just sex and more like that kind of, even if it's very temporary and only outlasting a couple of hours, sort of girlfriend experience that you might have. Um, there is potential evidence. And I mean, again, some of this is a little bit circumstantial, but you can kind of see through the actual physical artifacts that have been found there. You know, we've got perfume vials and there's a graffito that refers to someone who has come to visit the brothel who is a perfumer. So is he giving these perfume as a gift? Or, I mean, are we having gifts exchanged between prostitutes and clients? Um, is there something like a kind of an emotional labor that the prostitutes are expected to engage in to make their clients feel special, virile, like they've, you know, they're a really good fuck, whatever it is to listen to their problems to, you know, I keep, I kind of, in, in reading sort of that section of Sarah's book, I kept thinking back to some of the stuff, um, what was the television show with Billy Piper? Diary of a Call oh, Girl? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Diary of a Call yeah, Girl. Yeah, like that whole, that sometimes it was just sitting there talking to people, right? And I mean, I'm not saying that they weren't getting sex because they probably were getting laid. Um, but there was a lot of stuff that goes on around that. And some of the actual archaeological evidence and the artifacts that have been found in, in the, the large purpose-built brothel in Pompeii suggests that there's more going on than just having sex. And there's also the fact that there's all of this graffiti there, and not just in like the corridor where people might have been waiting, but in the rooms and above the masonry couches and all of these sorts of things, which suggests people were there for a period of time. You're making me think of Geisha. Yeah, I mean, and is that some aspect of that? Now, I mean, one of the things, and Sarah rightfully says this in her conclusion, you know, um, is this financially a viable system? Maybe not. Um, were the women who were working in the purpose-built brothel there all of the time, or was it just some place that they kind of worked occasionally where they might have had if they had one more loyal client who they wanted to spend more time with? I mean, just because you were working in the purpose-built brothel doesn't mean particularly if you weren't a slave, but in any case, it doesn't really mean that you couldn't have been, you know, down in the necropolis shagging somebody for a few coins either. So yeah, there's, there's a real, I, I think we have to be really looking at this idea of it differently because that need, um, I mean, there's a need for physical gratification. We get that, but there's also that emotional thing that goes on with this. And I think that we still see that in, various forms of sex work today so why should that have been any different 2000 years ago i mean did it differ did all of this differ among social classes quite possibly so one of the things and again i'm just because i mean this is the most recent thing that i've read on it it's so so good in reevaluating some of her material one of the things that sarah um says is she talks about the brothel in Pompeii um, suggesting potential use by more lower classes or slaves. So if we think about it like this, so we've talked already about the fact that um, elite members of society who own slaves could have used their own slaves at home for sex whenever they wanted. There was nothing stopping them from doing that. But if you don't own slaves, what do you do? And if you're a slave yourself, but you're a slave who, because I mean, we know that slaves earned money 
obviously some of them enough money they were able to buy their freedom. Mm. Um, if you're a newly freed man, you have some money, but you still don't own your own slaves or you only own one and, you know, you're tired of her or whatever. One of the things that, that Sarah suggested is if you were of that lower class, if you were the slave who's used to doing something like, say, serving at the dinner party of your master, can you go off to the brothel and now you get to be the one that's served, right? So there's that that almost reversal of role that for the lower classes, for slaves, for people who, who don't have that elite lifestyle, does going to the brothel um, versus just paying someone on the street corner for sex, does going to the brothel give you an experience that you witness but you can't actually take part in yourself? And that goes back to that whole idea of like it not just being about sex. Um, obviously, I've also said like, you know, we could potentially have different classes of prostitutes. Um, we could have more upper class ones who never work in a brothel, but you know where their house is, um, who might give you even more of that kind of girlfriend experience and emotional labor and all of those sorts of things. Um, so, I mean, there, there is evidence, obviously, we have of upper-class people going, which certainly comes from literature, but based on the evidence within Pompeii specifically, it seems to be that the brothel itself is catering more towards the non-elite. Hmm. A very important question. Was prostitution legal in the Roman world? Yes. Um, it's perfectly legal. It's taxed. Um, it's seen as a money-making part of the economy. Prostitutes, so I mentioned earlier that story about the, the woman who was uh, charged with adultery who wanted to go register as a prostitute. You actually had to register with an edile, like with a local junior magistrate, to say that you were a prostitute. Um, there is some speculation, and it kind of gets debated every once in a while amongst um, ancient historians, that Caligula actually owned a brothel on the Palatine Hill. And let's be honest, if any emperor was going to own his own brothel, it would be Caligula. So this makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's perfectly... Now, now, prostitutes are classed in the same way. I mean, socially, they're not accepted. Um, they have that... Um, designation of infamia of of being kind of lower basically beneath status um which is shared with actors gladiators um various other people who had what were deemed as you know like um I don't want to say dishonorable jobs, but not desirable jobs, certainly. And I mean, some of the people who might have like worked in um, the funerary world might have been classed like this as well, because they've seen as, as somehow um, engaging in, it's a loaded term in a modern context, in an anthropological context, but getting, you know, engaging in some sort of more taboo activity is really the issue. So they were, you know, for lack of a better word, social outcasts on a, in a way, but they were, it was perfectly legal. Absolutely perfectly legal. Do you know, I, I couldn't imagine funerary people being on such a low position. I thought they'd be much higher considering how much the, the Romans, you know, what they did for their, their, their dead. Yeah, but it, that's true. But it's also, um, it relates more to the fact that they're like, that, those ideas of contamination, mm. right? So if you think, if you if you go through all of the rituals of what happens with, when somebody dies, I mean, there's tons of stuff that a family is supposed to do 
um, in order to purify themselves. Um, I mean, they spend like nine days basically cut off from everybody else after a burial so that they can deal with any, you know, spirits or ghosts or any kind of contamination. And for people who are like, for the lack of a better word, undertakers, they're constantly being exposed to that. So there's no time of purification for them. I mean, people who are building funeral pyres and burning bodies outside of the city walls. I mean, there's just no, nobody wants to associate with people like that. It's incredible the how you would put prostitutes on that same level. But yeah. you, um, sorry to interrupt you. You mentioned that it was, uh, well, prostitutes weren't socially acceptable. But was it socially acceptable to actually use them? Or was it something that was, like you said, taboo? It, it is. But, I mean, it's really difficult. So we don't have, like in the ancient literature, we have lots of stories about prostitutes. And prostitutes are very often portrayed a certain way, but not necessarily in a way that is um, wholly accurate, but more the idea of how they're supposed to, you know, what we conceive of, of prostitutes um in some ways the issue is what i was talking about before that there's this lack of bonds to a family or a man um uncontrolled female sexuality so i mean like female desire is okay as long as it's within the context of your marriage um and women are supposed to be receptive and um passive in that desire they're not supposed to show their desire they're not supposed to show that they're lustful so they should enjoy sex with their husbands but they shouldn't necessarily be aggressive about it right um i mean a good roman woman's not going to lift her husband's toga and give him a blowjob in the peristyle right this is not what you're supposed to do um in theory, you know, this is like according to what the ancient sources talk about and stuff. For for to actually use prostitutes, though, on some level, it is seen as a good thing. So we know that we have all of these kind of morality laws that passed in, um, under Augustus. We have all kinds of um, things that are going around in, in the Republican period as well about lack of morality, and it has more to do with adultery. Um, so one of the things is if, I mean, we, we know generally that in the Roman world, Roman men tend to marry at a much older age than Roman women, but presumably those Roman men are still getting their rocks off somewhere. So maybe they're doing it with their own slaves, but maybe they occasionally go visit a prostitute as well. Um, you can just kind of see a group of 20 year old men having a little too, too much, um, you know, wine at the, at the dinner party and deciding it's a good idea, you know, the equi Roman equivalent of 2am to go to the local brothel. Um, we actually have a story that is about Cato, who's a notorious prude, um, which is related to us from Horace, who talks about him running into a young man he knows outside of the brothel on one occasion, and he compliments him for doing this, like, this is sensible, you're not trying to seduce some you know, young, proper Roman woman, you're not despoiling someone who hasn't gotten married yet, you're not engaging in adultery, this is great go use the prostitute but then he sees him again in like the exact same spot at a later date and he chastises him and horace actually says it's like something to the effect of it's really good that you visit the brothel just don't live there <laughs> so, so there's this idea of, of like it's okay in moderation 
Um, in moder- okay, moderation, I get it. Yeah, so again, it's it's not something like, I mean, using the, that prostitutes exist is, is everywhere in, well, you know, it's, it's fairly um, ubiquitous in certain aspects of Roman literary texts. Using them is not necessarily discussed as much. And I don't know how much of that is what survives, you know, that whole issue with the accident of survival. I don't know how much of that is because it's just one of those things you don't talk about. Um, like, you know, in other, I mean, we could, I'm sure we could talk about the same things in other periods of history. You don't talk about your mistress. You don't talk about your, um, you know, your trip to the whorehouse when you turn 18 to, you know, that your father takes you on to make a man of you. I mean, we've all seen examples of things like this, of stories being relayed like this, um, even if it's just in films and television. So the idea of, of prostitutes and use of prostitutes, I don't think is necessarily um, condemned. I think it's just that it's, don't do it too much, all in moderation. I was about to say, exactly, all, all, in, all in moderation. So you've, yeah. um, you've spoken about uh, a lot of ancient literature at the moment um, while we've been talking, but are there any other ways that they're portrayed in, in, in it, positive or negative? Um, it depends on who you're reading and, and the purposes. I mean, so some of the earliest stuff we have is that um, the, the Republican playwright Plautus talks about prostitutes in some in some of his plays and some of them have have the, he has a tendency to use these sort of stock characters of different kinds of slaves and things and prostitutes do appear um various times but one of the things that he he talks about is um more related to sort of a comparison between women and prostitutes so all women want gifts according to Plautus. Um, apparently uh (laughs) but wives want them for their family and prostitutes for themselves so there's that element of greed about it and that's kind of it's sort of again that goes back to that same idea of prostitutes being kind of selfish and greedy and unconnected to the proper familial structure of roman society um probably one of our you know most famous texts that people talk about if you're going to talk about love and sex of, of all those things is Ovid's art of love he actually claims is meant for meretrices so for the prostitutes um I don't think anybody takes this at face value and probably thinks that you know all of these lower class slaves and and street walkers are walking around with copies of Ovid and can read them and are saying oh yes this is how to be a better whore um and really, particularly what's wrong with that idea, and this is, this is pointed out very well in um, Anise Strong's book on prostitutes and matrons, is the idea that, that so much of what Ovid is even talking about in his kind of arts of seduction and how you do things are, are events taking place at elite establishments. So it's at dinner parties and it's at the theatre and, and these other sorts of atmospheres where we wouldn't necessarily have lots of lower class prostitutes walking around. Um, there are various other stories, and, and what they're best probably used for is not for understanding prostitution, but, I mean, we've got Bits and Petronius, Marshall and Ju- Juvenal, who all tell us little things about um, what a brothel might look like. So both Petronius and um, 
Catullus, in fact, and I think Juvenal as well, mention things like curtains that are being used instead of doors. Um, in the story that Marshall relays about, um, Marshall, wait, Juvenal, whoever, uh, um, about the story that's related about the Empress Messalina, it talks about putting her name up on like a little tablet above the door to, to identify her. Um, so there are various elements like this, even the, the sort of couches that they use and all of those kinds of things. Um, a lot of it is satirical. A lot of it is, is as an aside to something else. The only person who really writes really nasty things about prostitutes or pro is probably Cicero, but I think we can expect that of Cicero. Um, I mean, one of his massive invectives in, in the, in the pro Caelio is, a whole long diatribe about um, the woman Clodia and her behavior. And again, there's no, I mean, there's kind of a charge of, of being sort of wanton, but not necessarily of being paid for sex work. But Cicero very much goes, yeah, no middle ground. You're either a wife or you're a whore. And there's no in between. And oh, that's I think nice. Yeah, it, well, you know, it's Cicero. This is what we expect of Cicero on some level, isn't it? Um, but this is the whole thing that, that, that's really difficult is there's a lot of material in the ancient literature that gives us these little bits and pieces about prostitution, about habits, about brothels generally, about where brothels are and things like that. Um, but they don't necessarily, and sometimes moral judgments, but it doesn't give us a, a clear enough picture. And I think that this is one of those things where we talk about prostitution and sex work that even though there's some issues with the archaeology, it's the literature and archaeology have to be taken together because otherwise we're just, we really have no enough evidence from either one of them to really have a, a clear picture of what's going on. So you've got things in literature, obviously, that tell you what a brothel would look like, but how do you, how do you physically identify? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Buy one. Oh, that's a question. <laughs> that, that is a good okay. question. We, yeah, it's a really good question. So, <laughs> So back in the like the nineties, Andrew, Andrew Wallace Hadrill and Ray Lawrence um, did two things working particularly in Pompeii. And Andrew Wallace Hadrill came up with three ways, three elements that you need to identify a brothel. Um, and these are an erotic image, erotic graffiti, and a masonry couch. Um, 
by that definition, he came up with something like 35 potential brothels in Pompeii. Now we're talking about a city with an estimated population of about 12,000 people, 35 brothels. That's just ridiculous. Like, unbelievably ridiculous and i mean a lot of these are small you know like one or two rooms that kind of thing um the problem of course is that graffiti of a sexual nature is everywhere um images that are deemed erotic whatever that means are everywhere basically in in a context of of what he was saying either somebody's naked and not clearly mythological um or an actual sex act is taking place. But those are two different things. Um, And the masonry couch thing is another issue as well. Um, We don't find a lot of masonry couches in places other than Pompeii. So that seems to be a very local architectural feature. So in that case, how do you identify a brothel anywhere else? Um, Sex work by nature is transitory and probably leaves very little traces. And I mean, these, these criteria are ridiculous. So part of using those criteria, for example, nobody has ever managed to locate a brothel in Ostia. Now, Ostia, close to Rome, full of merchants and traders and the Roman army. And you're telling me there is no brothel? Fuck off, not possible. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's just not logical. Um, you can tell me there are that many men in the Roman army hanging around Ostia and nobody's paying somebody for sex? It's bollocks. It's just not going to happen. So there's a real issue with this criteria. And I, I mean, one of the things that I've always said, and, and I've, I've said this in lectures to students, and they always kind of look at me in, stock, in stunned silence at first, and then they giggle because they know that I'm right. Why do you need a masonry bed, or in fact, any bed, to have sex? You don't need a bed. <laughs> That's I mean, very true. You know, up against a wall, a tree, a whatever. I mean, if you're really, you know, agile and whatever, do you need anything to lean against? I mean, there are all kinds of ways you can have sex without having any kind of bed. Um, so to say that we can only ID a brothel when there's a certain type of bed in it is just bollocks. It just doesn't work. Um, So in places like Pompeii, where we have this evidence, we find erotic images and graffiti everywhere, Um, obviously. Um, A good identification of a brothel is a really hard thing to come by. Um, Anise Strong has suggested one in her book, and she's, again, she's stuck with a three criteria model and has done this to look at a different number of examples around the Roman Empire, so in places like Ephesus and Ostia, as well as Pompeii, and she comes up with a central urban location, a building with multiple entrances, so at least two, um, and the availability of a water supply. And that's really interesting and not something that we necessarily think about, um, particularly in an ancient context, after sex, you're going to, I mean, particularly for the prostitute, you're going to have to have a little bit of a wash, right, before the next client comes through. Um, besides other things that you might want water for, just simply like refreshment or cleaning other things down. In fact, um, the, the, I don't know what, how else to describe them other than the glorified 
plumber that is Frontinus, who writes an entire book on aqueducts, complains about prostitutes at the brothel siphoning off from the public water supply in Rome to get water. So I, I think that that's a much, much better um, approach to identifying a brothel, but it also, what it does, which I think is really interesting, is it massively reduces the number of potential brothels that we can identify in a place like Pompeii. But I think that's correct. I don't think they're 35. I think there's one purpose-built brothel and maybe some few odd rooms with a masonry bed that might have occasionally been used by prostitutes. But I mean, like I said, you can have sex anywhere. So um, one of the things that Thomas McGinn, who's another person who's worked extensively on ancient prostitution, has said is that we shouldn't even be looking for brothels. We should be looking for evidence of prostitutes because prostitutes could be anywhere. Um, not very clear in the archaeological record, but that's where you kind of get that that paradox of do you look for the place or do you look for the people who are actually engaged in the selling of sex? Mm. It's a little bit like gladiators, though, really, isn't it? It's very little archaeological evidence. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you have an arena, great. If you have some helmets or something, great. Other than that, you know, and an interesting point to that, um, a number of years ago, I was doing something and I was looking at, at like networks of gladiators around the area of Campania. And I suddenly realized that there are just as many things placing gladiators in terms of like the, the graffiti evidence and stuff like that we have um, and advertisements for games in Herculaneum as there are in Pompeii. But we have no amphitheater in Herculaneum. Now, granted, it could be somewhere under the modern city and we've just never found it. But here we have all this evidence tying gladiators to Herculaneum, but we don't have the thing that we would most expect to find in the form of an arena. I love it. I just, I love the archaeology. It's just so interesting of what you can find and what people, what kind of traces people leave. And it just looks like prostitutes leave very little trace. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us, what is, because you've mentioned this, moral zoning, what is it? Okay, so moral zoning is an idea that I think was potentially put forward mostly by, by both Wallace Hadrill and um, Ray Lawrence. And their idea is that you don't want your nice Roman matrons, your children, your elite people seeing prostitutes. So the brothel is located down some side street. It's our red light district in Amsterdam. It's that having that very specific, out of the way, cut off place where you keep the undesirable stuff like prostitutes and that way your good elite proper citizens don't have to see it if they don't want to um, so does the uh, does the, the 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 brothel in pompeii now the one that stands in pompeii now is that is that in a moral zone no it's really close to the forum it's so um it's the whole idea of moral zoning doesn't work and it's entirely down to contemporary views. So both our literary and archeological evidence um, demonstrate that prostitutes and their activities are visible everywhere. Um, Thomas McGinn argues that the idea of moral, zo moral zoning is something that is invented with the rise of Christianity. He, when his studies on prostitution, he basically looks at it from like, Republican Rome through the Byzantine and into the Christian period and says there's no evidence of anything regarding any kind of 
moralizing, real, like real moralizing, um, or segregating of where a brothel might be located um, until well into the Christian period. So this idea is very much modern and related to the rise of Christianity and has nothing to do with earlier Roman practice. Um, and there, there are things that, you know, there are little bits and pieces that, that tell us this. So for example, um, and this is just like from a really, this is why I think this is great. And I didn't even think about it. This is again, something that um, Anise Strong talks about in her book is in Livy's account of um, all of the issues with the Bacchanalia in the second century BC. And when this practice and worship of Bacchus gets outlawed in Rome, the story comes from a slave who then is going to, um, who's been a slave and involved in all of this because she's a slave. And she goes and she spends time staying in the house under the protection of this Roman matron until the whole trial comes about. So you're telling me they never had anything to do with each other in their house? I mean, that's a prostitute and a proper Roman woman. Um, Ovid mentions matrons and vestal virgins regularly running into prostitutes. We know that there are prostitutes in the Roman Forum. Um, they particularly like to hang out near the Temple of Castor and Pollux, apparently. They're around tombs, they're in bathhouses, they're in taverns. They really, really seem to be citywide. They are attested in ancient literature in tons of different places across the city of Rome. Um, and, and I mean, there's no, like I said, you don't have to have a brothel to have prostitutes. So they could be anywhere and everywhere. Um, when we look more closely at the brothel in Pompeii itself, yes, one of the streets it's down is, is kind of narrow, but it's really, really close to... Um, the forum itself. It's in a fairly central location. It's accessible. It's easily accessible. And to think that there weren't women, children, etc. walking down the street. Um, we know how close the local, you know, the nearest um, water fountain, public fountain is to that brothel because it doesn't have its own water source. The prostitutes would have had to go to fountain. Um, one of the fountains is that's very close to the one in Pompeii is right on the edge of a kind of a, like a little open square. You're going to tell me the prostitutes didn't go hang out on the side of the fountain and chat people up and see if they could drum up business and probably ran into some local women who were coming to get their own water or children on their way to meet their schoolmaster or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of the things that I think is a fault in a lot of ways we look at history. Sometimes we're just not logical. We look at the evidence we have and we come up with this whole big theory about things like moral zoning. And if we actually think about it logically, even if you don't recognize them for what they are, there's absolutely no way to avoid running into a prostitute. Do you know, that is such a common thing looking at it from uh, a modern perspective. And because in Pompeii, you, you have giant penises you have um, uh, statues of Priapus, for example, like in the House mm. of Betty, or uh, artwork with Priapus, or, or fawns having sex, or, you know, so much of these erotic images and, and graffiti, they're, they're just everywhere. And it clouds our moral judgment, you know, our modern moral judgment. And yeah. people just, I come across this so much when people talk about, oh, did you see all those penises? Ha, 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 ha. 
and it's like it's, it's not just about so talk to us a bit more about that about how we, we yeah, see it that's absolutely moderate so did you know i actually found this out when i was doing some research on something else did you know that the word pornography was actually invented in the 18th century by a german scholar to describe the stuff being found in pompeii and herculaneum oh really yeah so i mean like obviously it comes from so there's a there's a greek um, I mean, it's a Greek word, and there was something called pornographos, which was a, a genre of writing in the Greek world, and it was not, they were not erotic stories, they were stories about prostitutes basically, like, carrying on in their daily lives, like, doing the laundry and getting their hair done and all this kind of stuff, <laughs> these little tiny, like, these little vignettes of daily life of prostitutes. But the, the modern usage of pornography comes specifically as a reaction to the things that were being found in Pompeii and Herculaneum. And it's, I mean, just to give you a perfect example, so that we have this tendency when we look at the wall paintings to go, oh, fully clothed women, they're proper matrons, their wives, etc. And anybody who is semi-naked or naked entirely, if they're not identifiably like Venus, they're a whore. And it has nothing to do with the context, it has nothing to do with location, um, and what's really troubling about this is if we look at art generally, I mean, there's no clear distinction between who are matrons and who are prostitutes in any of the images we have. And even things like the lamps and things that are depicting sexual intercourse, I mean, there's still nothing to say that's not a Roman matron enjoying her husband, as is prescribed by all of the ancient literature, versus that's a prostitute with, you know... A client, we have nothing that indicates one of those things is the other. Um, and one of the things that's that's really important to remember is so much of like what you've mentioned. So like the penises all over the street, those are apotropaic. Those are a sign, a, sig a signal to ward off the, you know, the evil eye or bad spirits or um, ill thoughts or any of those things. Um, and that still is maintained as part of Italian culture, you go to Southern Italy today, you go to anywhere around the air, um, area of Naples and in Campania and where Pompeii is and pass anybody selling trinkets and touristy things on the street and you're going to find those little figures of chili peppers. Yes. Keychains, you know, for, oh God, I used to have one on a charm bracelet, all of these <laughs> things. That's, that's the modern phallus. It's the same thing as the blue eye that you get in Greece and Turkey and parts of the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm. It has the exact same purpose. So that idea that all of this stuff that has a phallus or a god like Priapus or shows two people in bed, even if they're not actually doing anything, um, you know, is deemed as erotic. That's totally a modern backlash against. I mean, that's modern, uptight, prudish morals that has nothing to do with the Romans whatsoever. Um, the Romans didn't have any issue with this kind of material. And, and there's even stuff, again, in some of the literature where, and I can't remember which author it is now, who basically says something to the effect of like, if a young maiden is pure and she sees this, it won't excite her in any way. And if, you know, an older woman who is married and whatever sees these same images, you know, um, she'll go and and if that makes her lustful she'll go home and and take care of that with her husband you know it's that same thing there's um there's a story about augustus's wife livia where she they're gonna well, i can't remember exactly all the details but basically she sees some men naked and it's like they're going to be put to death or something and she's like but i'm a chaste proper woman that that means nothing to me they might as well be statues 
So, yeah, that idea of the salacious, the erotic, the titillating, all of those, it's, it's complete crap. This does not, this is a modern viewpoint. And I mean, by modern, I mean, even mean, you know, going back to the 18th century when this stuff was first excavated, the whole idea of the, the secret cabinet in Naples and all of these things. I mean, it's all just modern stuff. It has nothing to do with anything that the Romans thought or perceived. Do you know, that is my favourite place, the Naples Museum. And, you know, some of the stuff in there is just like, this isn't the least bit erotic in any way whatsoever. It, do you know what I love the best out of that? And, I, and everybody seems to agree with me. Uh, the, 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 the hanging uh, penises. Oh, the tinsel album. Oh, I love yeah, it. I they're, want one. They're bells. I mean, they're, they're Roman bells and they were put on doors so that like, I mean, that was, again, it's a whole idea is, is you're, you're warding something off when somebody would ring the bell to come into your house or however, it would be getting rid of any, like cleansing the person of any evil spirits or whatever. And they'd laugh at it. My particular favorite one um, is the one where the man's, phallus is turned into a panther and is attacking him and he's warding it off with his sword and it's sort of like <laughs> so you're cutting off your own penis because it's turned to a panther and is trying to attack you makes total sense <laughs> i love that room it's just got some really awesome artwork in it it's just so out of the box you know it's something that you think oh that's very strange. do you know what i really wish they had in there um is the the i mentioned him earlier is the statue um, or the fountain, sorry, of uh, of Priapus from the House of Avetti, you know where he, oh, yeah. he he where he pees water into the. Yeah. I think that is such an awesome and statue. How, and how is okay? I know it's a small child, but like, how is that different from the mannequin piece in, in Brussels? That is also true, right? That I mean, true. it's the same. It's the same thing. It's just it, we look at sex in such a completely different way now, um, and we're yeah. more prudish about it. And it's 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 just it's a penis. It's about luck. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorites is there's a terracotta plaque that's in the secret cabinet room in Naples, and it's a giant phallus on the plaque, and it says, Hic Habitat Felicitas. It means, like, luck lives here, and it was found hanging above an oven in a bakery. So clearly that's a brothel. It's a, it's a uh, you know, hidden let's brothel. Just lean up against the, let's lean up against the, you know, the, the wheat mills and have sex here. No, I mean, it's just ridiculous, but it's taken it. That's the whole problem. And I've, I mean, again, I've used this example with students where I've shown them the, the terracotta plaque and then I've shown them the, the, the one drawing that exists of where it originally was. You put it back in context and they're like, oh, oh, that doesn't mean what we thought that meant. Is it, so tell me, are there any actual known images of, of prostitutes in the archaeological record? Um, not in the Roman world. Um, so there are some supposed Greek ones because of specific features that are identified like females in a symposium image or um, uh, like a different kind of a way of doing their hair with like a hair net instead of a veil and things like this. Um, in the Roman world, we have n no idea. Um, so the only thing that we have as a potential identifier is that supposedly female prostitutes or those convicted of adultery were supposed to wear like kind of yellow saffron colored togas. We have six literary references to this and no clear images of this. So how do you distinguish who is a prostitute? There's really nothing. Um, we have no idea also, I mean, what's really confusing about that is we have no idea if those saffron colored togas um, were only meant for convicted adulterers 
in which case, why would they be even depicted visually? Um, we don't know if, if prostitutes actually wore them. We don't know if prostitutes in any way were distinguishable from anybody else in their dress or their hair or anything. Um, and even if you look at the images um, in the brothel in Pompeii and where we have those, those yes, you know, sexual scenes going on above the doors, um, they're really idealized. So like the way the ha women's hair is done and the, the soft furnishings, the textiles, the, you know, table in the background, all of those sorts of things are really quite elite, fashionable items. So if you threw a proper clothing on any of those women, you wouldn't be able to discern them from an elite matron. And I think that's one of our biggest problems, you know, going back to what we were just discussing with this whole idea of what's erotic. If we can't even identify the people who are supposed to be selling sex in an image, then how are we supposed to, you know, think about them as being depictions of sex work? I mean, one of the things Sarah Levin Richardson says, particularly about um, those images in the brothel, are that they're almost more like idealized views of what's of like elite sex because of the hair and the furnishings and the whole thing so if you are a if there are lower class people using that brothel are they coming in there and seeing that and being yeah i can be just like my elite master of whatever form um and enjoy this same kind of lifestyle even if it's only for a couple of hours i've absolutely loved this conversation but before we finish <laughs> okay you know exactly what i'm going to do right now because <clears throat> we discussed this earlier you didn't think i was going to do it but i am going to do it so while uh, you posted up a tweet about uh, chatting away to us yes. and uh, one of my followers and i love what my followers they're all awesome but i want you to dispel something very very quickly Ugh. yeah it's i know not, it's not a menu so basically, for people who don't know what we're talking about, uh, in Pompeii, it was mentioned that there was a picture brochure at the brothel entrance. Um, Virginia, go. Please dispel this. Yeah, no, it's nothing like this whatsoever. The images that are above, um, that are on the walls, on the upper part of the walls in the brothel, are not menus. They are not things. It's not like McDonald's. You don't select. You want a number three and supersize it. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't resist thinking. Throw that one in there. Um, it is nothing about it. And in fact, if you look at them closely, they don't all even correspond to doors. So it's not like go through door number A if you want anal. You know, I mean, this is not how this is happening. Um, those are simply images for people to enjoy, perhaps to make them help anticipate what they're going to experience. Um, as I was saying before. You know, their ideas about um, how they are idealizing sort of this depiction of sex. It's all very, very normative sex acts. I mean, that's very different from some of the things that we see elsewhere, like in the suburban baths in Pompeii, where you have images of like cunnilingists and foursomes. Um, what you see in, in the brothel is all very normative, heterosexual. Um, males being dominant in the sex acts and all of those things and it has nothing to do with a menu or choices or anything like that it is simply there as part of the direct decoration and to enhance your experience 
I love that. I love when you said that. If you'd like anal, go through door A. If you'd like cunnilingus, <laughs> go through door C. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But that's the idea. And I mean, so many, I, I don't blame anybody for saying this because like, like I was telling you before, I mean, my father got into an argument with a tour guide when we were in the brothel in Pompeii once because the tour guide was saying this. Tour guides have been saying this for years. Just like they say that the, the you know, the penises carved in the paving stones point the way to the brothel. It's all crap. I love it. I love it. Listen, thank you so much for joining us and telling us and dispelling some of these myths and talking to us about prostitutes, where they appear in literature, uh, when, where they don't appear as well, uh, in, in, in artwork, talking about moral zoning, and um, basically telling us more about this brothel in Pompeii that I'm sure everybody now knows the truth about. So thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great fun. Join us tomorrow. Ryan McNutt is back. This came about because of a funny conversation we had about how much we dislike mel gibson so we are going to bring you a podcast on why braveheart is rubbish we're going to tell you everything that was wrong and talk to you about the actual historical events which inspired basically a whole load of nonsense on mel gibson's part there were no kilts there were no two-handed swords there was no face makeup but it's still a brilliant story the way it actually happened so join us for that and stay tuned because soon we will be bringing you a special week of programs on African-American history. The ripple effect of what happened to George Floyd has gripped the world. And we've taken our time with this, but we felt it was important to try and put those events in perspective and not only talk about how America came to be at this point, it is at now, this crucial point, but also why. We've interviewed some fantastic historians. There's some poignant, inspirational and utterly tragic material in some of these podcasts. It's been a highly emotional ride recording them and we're really looking forward to sharing them with you as well. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.